turn this on. Okay, let me find my. There we go. Okay, so today we're going to talk, this is our last topic. So we'll get this stuff done. This will take probably two classes. It might take three. Uh, this stuff is a bit different than you're used to uh, in, the, in the course so far. It may, like I said, it might take three classes. Uh, that's fine. Um, after that, we can do review. That's fine with me. Okay? So um, we're going to talk about multiple regression. So we're interested in this simple one-to-one -one relationship. This happens. I talked about yes, about two days ago, rather. What was it? Uh, income and education. So we are, we can be interested in those things, simple one-to-one -one variable relationships. So let's say we get an R, a correlation of 0.5. That's a pretty good correlation, by the way, for most sort of survey-based behavioral sort of stuff. In fact, that's exceedingly high. That's the kind of, the only time you see that with a survey type thing is if, uh, or a personality type thing, is if you're looking at IQ. IQ correlates with a lot of stuff around 0.5. Most things are around 0.3. So if you score on a personality scale of some sort and then you look at behavior, you get around 0. 0.3. 0.5 is good. 0.5 is actually pretty yeah, so it's pretty damn good. Uh, that would be something like, uh, in fact, IQ and income is about 0.5 for that two-digit correlation. Yeah, Dave. Negative mean would go down. That would mean the higher your IQ, the lower your income. Now, if that's still correlated, if it was negative 0.5, it would be going the other way. Right? So that would be the poly R relationship for sure. But that's pretty good. Zero. Zero. So the number of posts you have is not correlated to income. Positive 0.5, that means as one goes up, the other one goes up. If it's negative 0.5, as one goes up, the other one goes down. Right? We could probably go, here's a here's a negative correlation. IQ and number of years served in prison. Smarter you are, the less likely you are to go to prison. For a lot of reasons. You're less likely to do things that are useful. You're also more likely to be better removed from statistical variability. Until eventually you decide, oh, I got away with killing my wife and her friend. Now I'll break into someone's hotel room. Well done, Bruce. <laughs> During that whole thing, which most of you guys are too young for, a friend of mine said, there's no way he killed his wife. I said, well, it looks like he did. He said, well, he rushed for over 2,000 yards one year. I said, see, that's not really how it works. It's not like, yeah, he's a great football player, so he can't have killed anyone. So how much variance is accounted for? Now, this is where, I, remember I said at the beginning of the year, you start thinking of variance as a thing you sort of touch, which is a really weird way to think. How much variance is accounted for by one variable in the other? In other words, how much variance in, let's say, IQ is the same variance as variance in income? How much does one account for another? 
episodes of Fluff? That's a question you can add in a very interesting question because if two things are measuring exactly the same thing, your height in centimeters and your height in inches, you will get a correlation of one, right? In fact, the variance, even though you're using a different thing to measure it, is the same variance, isn't it, if it's one? It's exactly the same variance. If it's number of toes correlated with your income, there's no And the little tiny bit of variance there is, I find it unlikely that it has something to do with your income. Some people have nine toes, some people have 11. My aunt has 11. She had 11 toes. My dad used to win bets with his friends. Hey, Linda, take your socks off. You gotta count your toes. I got a $5 bet with this guy that my sister has 11 toes. Way to go, dad. And then he'd say, you know, she has two different colored eyes. And I'd say, no, she doesn't. Here, five more bets, one green, one blue. My aunt's like a genetic mosaic of some sort. It's fascinating. Um, my Auntie Linda, I can't see her listening. It's virtually in it. I don't think they have computers in Jesus. Think. I get the idea. Think about it. Kim Hortons was giving away free gift cards. No, they're not. Go to Snopes.com. All right. The variance in number of toes doesn't, there isn't very, there's very little, there's some, but it doesn't really overlap with your variance in your income. Um, the variance in IQ overlaps a lot with variance in income. In fact, they're measuring the same thing. Do you understand that notion? They're actually measuring a little bit of the same thing. That's the fact. So the r squared here, little r squared, is 0.25. In other words, a quarter of the variance, and this is actually pretty much true, in uh, income is exactly the same variance as the variance in IQ. Okay? Is that you okay, Jenny? It's hard to put the variance in there. I understand that. We'll, we'll get you there. Okay, so that's all I get from that. I will get you there. So we've been Which is a lot, a quarter of the variance in something. That's explaining a quarter of the variance is pretty good. 75% what? Okay. Wouldn't it be nice to know what the other 75% was? That'd be cool to know. Accounting for a quarter of the variance in any variable, that's pretty impressive. If we were thinking of it in regression terms, some intercept plus some number times your IQ equals your income. Right? So why don't we bring in what else? 
some number, let's give you some, but something times the rise of t, plus something else times the original equation is equal to the So we're just going to add another variable to our answer, dividing it in r. So there's the y variable. Okay? That's it's on the y-axis, and that's pretty much. And there's the there's x1. And there's the overlap. That's not just a quarter, that's kind of like a point two or so. Close enough to rock and roll. That's x1. So there's x2. Now we've explained a little bit more variance. Let's fill that one out. But the nice thing is we've got the overlap too. So variances in the two variables overlap. That's exactly what we're seeing in this one. Our goal eventually, if possible, would be to have all of y covered up. Within reason. Does that make a little more sense? Do you think you want more variance just like that? Like it's a Venn diagram. Right there, taking out the reason R, which we call a Venn diagram. Yes, please. No, that is not an interaction. Yeah, that's, which is something we'll get to. But yeah, that's that's right. That's that would not be an interaction. So the nice thing is we're modeling this. We can actually do this, and there's nothing wrong with doing it. So we said, remember before it was y hat equals a plus bx. Well, um, now we stop using a. Everything's just using a. Again, I don't know why it's done. So y hat equals b sub 0, that's the intercept, plus b sub 1 x sub 1 plus b 2 x 2 plus dot 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 plus b underscore p minus 1 x underscore p minus 1. Let's let the residual work out. Shouldn't that be p? No. It should be p minus 1. p is the number of terms in the model. d0 is a term. So that's, in fact, didn't that actually should remind you a little bit of something. It looks a lot like Galaxy Variance, you think about it. Yeah, it's not. It's very mean, it's not for everybody. Just like B does, it doesn't matter where you are. Then plus some things about variables, plus some variables. It's not that different. It's saying that y hat is a linear combination of a bunch of things. We have p minus 1 predictor variables. The x's are predictable. 
You gotta remember though, we're not calling them x and y and z. We're calling x1, x2, x3. Okay? So the x1 and x2 are two different laws, two different covariates. So we'll use this uh, the notation of uh, x1. Now this is actually for the data set itself. These are actually statistics. They're estimates of how the real world works. This is going to be something These are statistics. In the population, it looks like that. But why? Now, no one's thought this anymore. No one has. We're saying this is how the world actually works. Equals beta sub zero plus beta minus one plus beta sub epsilon plus dot 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 plus beta sub t minus one x sub t minus one plus epsilon. That actually is a little more likely now to scenario. Because these are brand names. But we're saying this is how the world works. This isn't a prediction. No, it's not that. Okay, this isn't a prediction. The world actually is a linear combination of all these things together. Plus whatever is left over. We're trying to actually figure out what this is by calculating what those little b's are. Okay? So we're trying to figure out what this is. That's pretty damn sure. But we're, we're not going to get there without estimating it. Because if we knew this, we wouldn't have to do the experiment. Wouldn't have to collect the data. Uh, here's an assumption. The errors are normally distributed. The intended w is mean of zero and the variance of sigma squared sub epsilon. Which is exactly the same in analysis of variance as the same errors of epsilon and mean of the models. Exactly the same. Right? You've seen models before. They don't look quite like this. This looks a little more mathy somehow. But it's the same damn thing. Epsilon is not prediction error. In the, in the statistical model, the y-hat model, it actually is error in prediction. This is individual variation that we haven't explained. It's not prediction error because this is not a prediction. This is a description of the universe. But there's stuff we haven't explained. Well, we never we don't never know for certain because it's it's randomness, right? And it's even with randomness, it's data. But you have to remember that the error itself, that the, uh, the residuals e are actually unbiased estimators, in fact, of epsilon, and they should have a mean of zero. Variance of sigma squared sub epsilon and normal and independent, and it, that's exactly the same thing as we had as we've had before. Which is, if I know uh, if I know ng score, I don't know j score. I just don't know. They're independent and they're normal. So if I take all your error scores, I get a nice normal distribution. And you, meaning all of the humans, because this is for everyone, for every rat, for every plant. Right, for every protein, or whatever the hell you're doing. Okay. Are you okay so far? It's a, like I said, it's, we're, we're turning it a little bit on its head here. It's a little different than ANOVA, but it's got some similarities. Now, like I said, note, y is not predict predicted y. It's not y hat. This is not a prediction. 
This is how the universe works. If I gave you, for example, if I was to give you a list of all of the faculty salaries of my wealthy friends back in the day, I wouldn't do that. But if I had that, if I gave you a bunch of variables, there'd be things that I could give you, right? How about a number of years working for me? You would do that for me, right? You would take your rank and take it with you, right? I'd like to use some professor and professional professor. You might think that. Your income here as a professor, oh, I don't know, uh, number of courses taught. You teach extra courses, you get paid extra. I can give you that, and you can come up with the B0, B1, B2. You could do that. I actually know the world, and that actually is public knowledge. Go to our public hearing, great, 75 pages of citations, and there actually is a formula. It's not written out like that, but in essence, it is like that. It says your salary equals the floor or your rank. Right? The floor for some kind of The floor for associate is professor plus the number of years of service times a number. You could actually make a prediction, and, and, and that's fine, and you probably get one that's pretty accurate, or you could actually look it up and say, oh, the world actually works like this. Right? Whoops, wrong way. I hope that doesn't screw up the recording, and if it does, well, too bad, you should come to class. All right. What do we get when we do this? If t minus 1, that's the number of predictors, we get a line. We get, we get x and y, we get a line. Right? Think about it. So t minus 1, we have that means that equals 1. We have one predictor. This is x, this is y. And we get a line. Now, if you've looked at the notes in advance, uh, don't try to answer this question. But what do you think we get at t minus 1? Plane or a surface. Now, what's that mean? 
and y. This is x with x. Okay? We're only looking at x and y. So this is uh, x and that's y. Two matrices. Now, there's a slope. So if x1 equals this and x2 equals this, I can say y equals there. It's a plane. Is it plane? It's a plane. I can still imagine that. Did anybody here do xyz coordinates in high school? Parking coordinates, xyz. So Miranda, you did. Anybody else? Only Miranda went to some special math school. Mike, yeah. You think what? Yeah, I think it's touched on. I mean, we did it in grade 13 algebra, but that was when it was grade 13. We had this very strange thing with three yardsticks, like big, you know, rulers, or meter sticks, as they eventually called them. They're still called yardsticks, even though we don't use them here. Y-axis. So y-axis and x-axis That's a kind of a pure misdirection. I just have that in there because I like saying hyperspace. Spin up the FTL drives. What do you hear, Starbuck? Nothing but the rain, sir. Nobody watched Battlestar Galactica. What is wrong with you people? I mean, it was a great show. It was on recently enough. You should have watched it. And if you have not, I, I encourage you. Really? You didn't watch that? Okay, you don't remember him saying that all the time, a couple of times, right? Commander Adama said that Starbuck, what do you hear, Starbuck? And he should always say, nothing but the rain, sir. Now, watch it again. I, all of them, I don't know. Watch it again and again and again and memorize it. The other thing, Commander Adama always says, yeah, you know, do your job. He just says, do your job, and mumbles when he says, you know, Colonel Ty. <coughs> Another Cylon. Saw Ty from the Colonial Fleet. Then he drinks some more. 
and the same voice is in Mass Effect 3 and Mass Effect 2 when you're watching it. You guys curl a pie, isn't it like that? Anyway, I can play in hyperspace. I like I like imaginary stuff. If you can think of time as variables, and you can think of that time goes in any loops, go ahead. I can't. <laughs> but if you can think that way, that's great. If you get more than three, if you get like four, then that time, and my old staff taught me, he said he was able to imagine the time, and he was able to imagine it changing color from red up to violet. Uh, Ian has a very special mind for things like this. Uh, I don't. <coughs> I've often said, draw yourself a picture. It helps. Stop drawing pictures. Okay? This is one of the reasons, by the way, that I like things that have two predictors, because I can imagine a future. I can't imagine a hyperspace. I can think of it moving around in space, uh, sort of like moving around in time matter, but I, I, um, I don't know what it helps me. I mean, I don't technically <coughs> to understand. Okay? And if you had trouble understanding the surface, you understand the same thing, right? Because a line, we all understand lines. We've been graphing lines since we were in grade three, grade four. Didn't graph a lot of surfaces. Might have done that again in grade 12, something like that. It's good. It's best to try not to visualize hyperplane because your brain might explode. If you can, that's wonderful. If you've got that kind of skill, like if you're a Cylon, it's all Battlestar Galactica, you know <laughs> Analysis variance returns with a vengeance. Just when you thought that Nova had made peace with the humans, they attack our homeworld. It's about how much variance have I explained, isn't it? Right? That's all it's about. Okay, let's use that. We have two sources of variation here. We have variance due to contraction, and we also have So that's And we have variance due to whatever that Sounds like a simple one-way ANOVA, but it's in fact it looks a lot like one. So the analysis of variance you do itself looks like this. So we have analysis of variance here. We have due to regression, source of variation, and residual. And this helps. Uh, the degrees of freedom for regression are p minus one, and for residual are n minus p, which coincidentally adds up to n minus one. The number of records we can call that, right? It's the number of data points. Minus one plus n minus p equals minus one. Three minus p. Yep. Why is it one and not two? It's some of the squares regression divided by actually actually. 
Sum of squares of fraction divided by p minus 1. Sum of squares of residual divided by n minus p. Thank you, Mike. Not by p minus 1, by n minus p. And then to find out if we have a significant <coughs> model, if we've explained a significant, significantly different from zero portion of the variance, we take mean squared regression and divide by mean squared residual. Okay? So we just want to see if we can explain a significant part of the variance. Uh, if we, of course, we have. This is an early day first step. Remember, this analysis is about the whole model. So if you've got 26 variables, or three, right? This is the whole model. If you haven't, when you have three or four or five or nine variables, explain a, a, a significantly different from zero amount of variance, I believe you could. Yes. not about individual variables. So if we were predicting uh, income, and we had IQ in any variable, right? This is saying something plus, something times IQ plus something times every variable. So that's what this is testing. It's those two together. It's not saying is IQ a significant, sorry, is, is uh, yeah, IQ significant Saying those two together, when you add them up, are they explaining a significantly different from zero portion of the variance? And it's interesting, if we threw in our thing about number of codes, so is IQ and, and then the individual determinant of the number of codes, is it still significantly different from zero portion of the variance? Then it's a little bit closer to be a problem for you. Is it really a problem? Can you do it? Here we go. Testing this whole regression model, that would show up as a significant model. You can see it's not talking about individual variables, it's talking about the whole model. So, in fact, this isn't a horribly useful thing. It's a first step that you must do when you're doing regression, but it's a first step. We want to find out about individual uh, x variables. Right? Yeah, please. In essence, that is what you end up doing for individual, um, you know, the little b's that go yeah, in front. They're the coefficients, right? So b1 times x1, b2 times x2. If those are different from zero, is what you're testing. Because if they equal zero, that means that when it would, for our toe thing, it would be zero. You know, it'd be something times your IQ plus something times your years of education plus zero times the number of toes you have. Because the number of toes you have does not affect your income. That means that it's explaining no variance. So we're testing to see if that B is significantly different from zero. That and it is in essence, it is a contested in the model. It is a contested model. So the model is a thing with the sum of its parts. It is B1 x1 plus B2 x2 plus B3 x3 plus x x x plus x b sub b minus 1 x sub b minus 1. Okay, all that left. 
as I say, if the individual constituents are significantly, either statistically significant or, you know, scientifically interesting. Now, obviously, you want to do something a little more fine-grained than this. Of course, your model was significant. I mean, it bloody well better be. Uh, it kind of has to be. If you take a whole bunch of variables going to happen. Right? If I measure everybody's height and everybody's weight and everybody's age and everybody's, uh, I don't know, number of coats you own uh, and how many keys you have in your pocket, and then I, let's say, what's our Y going to be? What, what year of university you're You'll find a correlation of some sort there. It'll probably be pretty damn weak, but you'll find something. And if I took enough of those X's, if I measured like 200 X's, I'd get a significant. Of course, that helps. Of course, I can get that. Keep adding a little tiny 0 0.01 plus 0 0.01 plus 0 0.01 plus 0 0.001 plus you eventually add up to, oh, no, 0.4. It only took 300 variables to get there. Not very interesting. Let's find out what of those 300 of the 300. Hey, you've seen that movie? There you go. See? A little more recent. Actually, it isn't. Battlestar Galactic, the first was 2003. It's the original series from 1978, which is different. If you've done Netflix, kind of fun. We're much more concerned with how much extra variation is accounted for by adding a new variable into the model. Remember, we had the x and the y. We don't really care about the whole model yet. We're trying to find out something. Our, our end game for this whole thing is to come up with something pretty damn simple. We can say y equals this plus this times this plus this times this plus this times this. Two, three, four variables. That you probably wouldn't want to go a whole lot further than that. You can. You probably don't want to. R squared is sum of squares regression divided by sum of squares total. And that's not a mistake because it should be these guys. Sum of squares regression divided by sum of squares total. That's what we do with our big R squared. That is the total amount of variance explained by the model. Okay? That's the total amount of variance explained by the model. Total amount of variance in y is predicted. Explained by the model, that's why it's the first one. Okay. Okay, I'm going to stop for a second. I want you to ask your questions. Okay, I'm going to go over a couple of things. Do you understand what we're doing? We're predicting y from a bunch of x's times numbers added up together. So we're saying, you know, y equals 4 times x plus 3 times x1 plus 2 times x2. That's what 
those the three, the four, and the six, or whatever the hell you put your turn all the way back in. Those are what those keys are. Yeah, so, well, I can't really do one. I can give you an example of sorts. So if we were predicting, and this is something a friend of mine is not as familiar with this, he was predicting the number of cigarettes people smoked per day. Okay? So cigarettes per day, that, and he wanted to do that. And I said, well, I don't want to do that. Again, there's a little bit projected, but it's a lot of samples from about three hours. The easiest thing to do is actually do something you can ask people this question. Why would you ask people how many cigarettes they smoke a day? Because people underestimate the horror stories that they hear about. Right? First off, first, they're smoking, and they just tell them, how many cigarettes you smoke a day? And then they just say, people should smoke less, and people go, they smoke that almost invariably. So they don't know how to get him predict. But people are able to say things like, so we want to predict cigarettes per day. That's our Y, so CPD. And that equals, <coughs> some number, we call it D1, times, your times the first cigarette. People are very good at doing that. How many hours, how many minutes after you wake up is your first cigarette? They're very good at that. Because they know. I wake up every morning, and you know, finally when I go to work, I have cigarettes. How long is that? Two hours. B2 times the number of years they've been smoking. People can do that well too. They can say, when did you start? I was 14. Okay, how old are you now? I'm 23. Okay, you've been smoking for 24 years. How many years have you been doing this? What? B2 is just some number. We don't, I don't know exactly what it is. But it would be a number that you could come up with by doing this. Right? And the model actually isn't quite this simple. It's actually the four variables I can. In essence, what you do. Now I'm able to predict how many cigarettes people smoke a day by asking them two questions. And I ask actually four questions on the first one. I think it's actually two or four, because you don't know why yes or no. And you can take the day. So there's three of them on the first one. Uh, I think it's four. But let's let's leave those out. So it's B1 times time the first cigarette. And you'd expect that's going to be a pretty small number. It's probably some decimal thing, right? It's like time per cigarette minutes. Some people might, I don't usually get to the cigarette number, but I can see that. Well, in the real world, in typical sunlight, you could actually do three multiple times three in combination. But we don't know it, so we're going to try to predict it. Cigarettes per day, then, is our y-hat equals d1 times x1 plus d2 times x2. There's also going to be stuff in the model. When you report the model, you will be pretty plus in here. There is stuff in here. There's also going to be some question, some, some common level to everybody. Everybody who smokes, smokes a certain amount of cigarettes today. Doesn't matter. Let's just make up and call that. Zero. That's the inner 
But you can see what would happen here is if we actually did this, we would get these Bs times these Xs. We measure the Xs. We ask the people the question. And then the, the, the math, the complete regression, figures out what Bs are. <coughs> We're not going to show you that. It's, it's way We want people, we want to be able to make predictions. That's what this is about. This is about making a prediction. You can see this being very useful. It can also be theoretically interesting, right? Instead of something like cigarettes per day, you might predict something about um, a growth rate of some sort, uh, of, of, of a bunch of neural cells or some such thing. Or you might be predicting uh, a personality variable. You know, your score on a personality scale equals this plus this plus this. Score on, uh, uh, I don't know, some regression scale is actually a combination of um, something times your age plus something times your sex, zero or one, plus something times your parent income. That would be really theoretically interesting. Right? So do you understand sort of what it does. It's the same sort of thing that happens when you go into the doctor and they look at your height and they measure your weight. They have a regression model. They mostly don't know that's what it is, but they have a regression model because they have a chart. They don't need your height. They just need this. They have a chart that says, oh, for that weight, oh, oh you're a little too tall for your height, for your weight, rather. Short for your weight. Right? They can predict your height for your weight. It's going to be very easy. You can see how that would work. So that's what's happening. But if you were to do this, you actually apply to this work. You could have 23 variables of cigarettes per day. I still have that data set because we use it in graduate school as a like to do exercises on. So 
So we want to know when to add a variable. That's what you're saying. Because if you've got, if you start out with just cigarettes per day equals something times hundred per cigarette, you don't explain very much. You explain so little that it's not useful. I want to explain enough variance that I don't have to get people to switch into a drug. He just goes that easy. Even the cocaine was pretty stable after 24 hours. Even the cocaine level isn't perfectly correlated with the number of cigarettes you smoke a day, uh, smoke per day. It's pretty good. We want Todd wanted something that was as good as using a measure of, of protein in your in your saliva. Okay. So if you have a five model with five x variables, so you got x one, x two, x three, x four, x five. And you add a sixth variable. Does your R squared drop? R squared, remember, is sum of squares with brackets and divided by sum of squares with closed brackets. Okay, so do that. Squared equals sum of squares for graphs divided by sum of squares total. Now, I think Mike gets this stuff, so I want somebody else to answer my question. If we add a sixth x variable, will sum of squares with graphing over sum of squares total go up from what it was when we had five? How much is explained by all this? This has to go if we add more. Because some of regression has to go. Because there's a little bit more variance explained by adding in one more variable. Just a little more variance explained. It could stay constant if there was absolutely no correlation between the sixth x variable and your y. Chance there's absolutely no correlation is so incredibly small. It's theoretically possible. Theoretically. Does the R squared go up? Well, it has to. It has to. Okay. The question is by how much? And that's the question you're asking when you're adding a new variable into a model. Is it going up enough? What I want to Oh, it's almost completely irrelevant now, I guess. Um, you'd like it to explain a significant portion of the variance, but you know what? When you've done this, almost every, you wouldn't have gathered data that didn't somehow correlate with Y. What are you, an idiot? I mean, you wouldn't measure enough number of codes. It's just not something you do. You know, all the things in, the, in, the, in Todd's data set were all about cigarette smoking. They all, at some level, probably correlated with cigarettes per day. In fact, I know the data. They do. They all do. So it's a question of, is the is it enough that I want to keep it in the model? They almost always will explain another significant amount of, of, of variance. The question is, is it, is it enough to satisfy you? Yes. Yeah, we'll go through a few different rules. 
We'll go through a few of these rules of thumb, and it's not so much based on percentage um, as it is other things that I haven't gotten yet. So, but that also plays a role. Throwing another 40%, well, hell yeah, of course I'm going to keep it. I don't even care. It makes no sense whatsoever. If one of the variables was, do you have a yellow t-shirt, and it explained 40% of the variance, I go, yep, dude, just see what kind of t-shirt they have. It would, too, because yellow t it used to be a white t-shirt. It's nicotine stain. Is it enough to deal with the loss of degrees of freedom? You've lost degrees of freedom in your uh, some sort of system. Um, and you've also made everything more complicated. It's especially, for me, it's especially true going from two to three with explanatory variables. Because we're going from something I can visualize, and I can actually get a graphing program to graph 3D graphs. That's trivial. I can't get a graphing program to make things move in time. I, mean, I probably could, but you need an animation thing. It's not going to work for most people. You need a whole bunch of things and you have to flip it, you know, something like that. So, for me, if I'm going from two variables to three, that's a pretty important improvement. Those better be named important than the name. Three and four are pretty good. Three and four are stuff. Three and four are just like that. Yep. Three and four are Yeah, but you, it's always the same trade-off like you have with the repeated measure design. It's like almost always. But think about this. With these kind of things, if you've got 20, 30 variables to choose from, there are going to be ones that are saying very little. Very, very little. The model that explains the most variance is not the best model, necessarily. It, it, it could, yeah. The significance of the model could, yes, the true value of the model. Mm, kind of. It sort of is. It's one of the things you might look at. So why don't we look at something other than R squared? Because R squared is always going to go up. I'm never going to ask you this, okay, to calculate it. But this is called adjusted R squared. Some squares error, and there's like some squares that are just uh, some squares over. Some squares error, some squares residual. This actually can go up and down. So that's nice. If it goes down, it's hurting us. It's called adjusted R squared. We're, we're weighting it. This is a little overweighting it by um, both the number of degrees of freedom that you have lost. Or, sorry, total number of degrees of freedom and the number of degrees of freedom that you're using. Right? So the sum of squares error, that's sort of what it Yeah. And the sum of squares over. That's what that is. Is it the adjusted R squared? No, it's the limit of your function. Um, This weighting is what 
So what we get here is something that the important point is when you see adjusted R squared in output, you say, oh, that can, that can fluctuate. That can go up and down. That's the beauty of adjusted R squared. You got to look. If you, if, you, if you like math a lot, you look at that long enough, like Mike used to, oh, I see. Um, so this is adjusted R squared. It's our friend. This is weighted by the number of variables in the model, and it can go up and down. Maybe the more variables are added. That's the beauty of this. It's not the be all and end all. It's not our only decision maker. It's not the only piece of data we're going to use to make a decision and keep this in the model. It's the other one. This is almost kind of like art for the science most sites. It's subjective almost. Right? Because you're looking at it going, man, no. Does it make sense to make the model more complicated? The number R squared is a total variance explained. Okay? And it always must go up whenever you add more variables. It can't not go up. The problem is that's useless to look at every time we add something. What this does is it controls and it can go down. Yeah, it can. It can go up and down. That's the beauty of it. So we did this last time. We looked at what the best model was in this situation. And, oh boy, the microphone's working a lot better today. <laughs> anyway, uh, when you look at these three models, we have a two-variable model and two one-variable models. I would probably go, I would probably go with this one, the two-variable model on the right, because we have, we're explaining a lot more variance here than we are here. Um, that's nice. Also, we know there's no overlap, which is beautiful, because 30 for sum of squares here, 50 here, and 80 here. So they're actually explaining unique variants. And that's a really important thing, as we'll talk about today. So uh, for me, that, that really is probably the best one. Though I would accept that if, if this was a test question, if you made the argument here that a straight line is easier to understand for most people on a graph than a plane, that's a decent argument. So one could argue that that's okay. That is wrong. <laughs> the one in the middle is not the best model. It can't be. It explains the smallest amount of variance. Right? But because there's no overlap, I mean, you really... And it's only a plane. Planes aren't that hard to understand. They're like a surface. So I'm pretty sure the one on the right is the best one. Now... We talked when we talked about uh, AP cells and unbalanced designs about type 1 and type 2 sums of squares. The same sort of thing happens here with regression. There's two kinds of sums of squares you can calculate. There are type 1 sums of squares. And the only reason I'm telling you about this, by the way, is so you can do this with SPSS or SAS or a lot of these programs. You can get type 1 and type 2 sums of squares for each variable. So they become a diagnostic tool for you. I'm not going to ask you to actually play with them on a, a, a test or I'm not going to find an example. The type 1 sum of squares depend on the order the variable go, variables go in the model. The type 2s don't. And I'll explain this in a second. So let's say we have a three-variable model. So we have a data set with a y, an x1, an x2, and an x3. Okay, so that's, that's what we have. So we're going to take a look at this. 
and try to determine which variables we want to keep in the model. The type 1 sum of squares, so it's sum of squares regression for each of these, just x1. The type 1 sum of squares for x2 is x1 and x2. The type 1 sum of squares for x3 is x1, x2, x3. So it depends on what order you actually put them in the model. If you put x3 in first, then this type 1 sum of squares for x3 is just going to be x3 by itself. And then if we put x1 in second, it would be x3, x1. The nice thing about type 2 is you can see they're going to be much more useful because it's x1, given x2 and x3 are in the model. This is telling you only about extra variation. In other words, the type 1 sum of squares, it's like it's going through steps. It's like, okay, we've got a one-variable model, now a two-variable model, as well as a sum of squares regression for the whole model, sum of squares regression for the whole three-variable model. These are looking at just extra variance given, that's what that bar means, given that x2 and x3 are already in the model, given that x1 and x3 are in the model, given that x1 and x2 are in the model. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so you can see, in fact, the type 2s as a sort of diagnostic tool for you are going to be a hell of a lot more useful. So if you, if you are using, if you're trying to determine how much extra variance has been added, you're going to use the type 2 sum of squares. Okay? And you might see that as an option on a, on a printout, uh, like on, on a data, an output on a data for a program, you would use that. And the question you might ask is, well, why should you care? Um, if there's no correlation actually between the variables, the type 1s and type 2 should be equal. In other words, if there is no overlap between the x variables, then the x1s and the x2s should be exactly the same. So that becomes a diagnostic tool to tell if there is a relationship between the x variables. That's awesome. It's very useful. So now instead of, um, and remember, it would be easy with three variables. That's easy. You've got a correlation matrix, you just take a look if they're correlated. What if you get 150 variables? And you want to choose some subset of them. So let's choose these five. They seem reasonable. Then it becomes a lot more useful. And you're never going to get no overlap, but a little tiny bit. If they're only a little bit different, that's it. Okay, that's pretty good. If there is a correlation, the type 1 sum of scores are not equal to Uh, there are always going to be some correlation. Oh, almost always, there's going to be some correlation. That cooked up example of what's the best model, there was no correlation. That's, ex that's vanishingly rare. It's hard to find two variables that don't correlate. It just doesn't, doesn't matter what the hell they are, right? In a, in a sample. So we'll talk a little bit more about this later on. Just something to keep in mind. It's, it's something that's, that's useful for, de for detecting when there's a relationship between the variables. What can type 2 sums of squares give you? So type 2 sums of squares give you the extra variation accounted for by having a variable in the model given the other ones are already there. This will give us a nice statistic we can actually use called the coefficient of partial determination. Okay, or um, it's certainly well, it's certainly opposite of our of our square. 
Remember big R squared is this thing of how much variance is accounted for by all the variables in the Y. That's the coefficient of multiple determination. The coefficient of partial determination, in fact, is going to give us, in a way, a statistical control for, let's take this, let's use an example. I want to look at your years of education, your IQ, and your income. We know the years of education and IQ are going to overlap a lot. Which are. Right? It would be nice to know how much years of education contributed to your income, ignoring your IQ. What this does, this coefficient of partial determination, is it actually says what we're going to do is we're going to ignore the overlap. And now we're just going to see the little bit that's accounted for solely by years of education. So it's unique variance. So that's what the type 2 is. In fact, that's what they help you do. That's pretty cool. There's two ways you could do a study like that, right? You could find people that all had exactly the same IQs and then correlate their years of education with their income, or you could just not care and do this. It's a lot easier. So extra variation, so if the coefficient of partial determination, gives us the extra variation accounted for by adding in another variable. Ah, it's not square. You can take the square root of it, I should say, and get what's called the partial correlation. And you might see this in a paper sometimes, where they talk about a partial correlation or they partialed out some variable. So what you're saying in that case is, I'm statistically controlling for something. So you don't square it, you pick the square root of it. Okay? So all this does is it gives you extra variance, unique variance accounted for by a variable. Not variance that's shared, unique variance. Okay? Okay, I did. I pushed the button. I just forgot to remember that I pushed it. Why does this matter, you're asking yourself? Well, think about the model. Y hat equals B sub 0 plus B sub 1 X sub 1 plus dot 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 plus B sub P minus 1 X sub P minus 1 plus E. That's our prediction model, right? There's nothing there but <laughs> variables coming together at all. Two X variables. Nothing. Nothing at all. There's nothing there saying, oh yeah, and the overlap. This actually is saying explicitly that there's no overlap. Because math's like that, right? If it doesn't say it here, it, it's not there. And we found out, remember, from analysis of variance that the assumptions all fall out of the model, right? They all come from the model to start with. So one of the assumptions of, of, of multiple regression is that there's no relationship between the x variables. And there's almost always going to be a relationship between the x variables. It's virtually impossible to have one. It has no relationship. But there's nothing there. So we care about 
we care about the overlapping variance of x variables. Because we don't want it to be there, even though it's almost always there. This problem of overlapping x variables, of shared variance between predictor variables, is called multicollinearity. Multicollinearity, which is a great word. It's up there with like psychoneuroendocrinology. It just sounds great. <coughs> it sounds like something you hear on Star Trek, you know? But, Sir, there's multicollinearity in the warp core, you know? Just great psychobabble, right? technobabble. It's a real thing, unlike, say, warp cores. See, what you're doing is you're violating an assumption that there's multicollinearity. And you never want to violate assumptions, Kristen. Wait, okay. What is multicollinearity? It's over. It's it's when two or more um, predictor variables, the x variables, are correlated. Okay. Yeah. They overlap when they when they. If you think of the Venn diagram thing, okay. when they overlap as well as overlapping with y. Right. Because they don't overlap with the y variants. They if they don't, we're not going to use them. But we don't want them overlapping with each other, except that they don't. So you're violating an assumption. This will change the beads. This will change those uh, coefficients. Because remember, it's something times x1 plus something times x2 plus something times x3. It'll change these. And they're the key to our model, right? Because we're saying we multiply, you know, so we're saying income equals some number plus, I'll pick something. 27 times your IQ plus 43 times your years of education. But actually it's wrong because the Bs were calculated based on the notion that, excuse me, based on the notion that there is no overlap between years of education and income. You may know that's probably wrong. So it's going to change these. And we don't want that. So we have to be able to detect multicollinear. We have to find it and destroy it. Well, we can't destroy it, but we have to at least find it. This is one of those um, assumptions you can violate a little bit. Kind of like how in analysis of variance you can violate the homogeneity of variance a little bit. You can violate this a little bit. It's going to, however, change your model and change it for the worse. The easiest way to do this is look at a correlation matrix between your variables. Easy thing to do in any kind of snap package. You just say, give me the correlations of every variable with every other variable. Oh, look, x1 and x2 correlate 0.5. Uh, one of those we're not going to use. So you probably have to chuck one of your variables. Just get rid of one of them. Yeah, Mike? Where's the line properly? I know it's subjective, but. It's a good question. I mean, I'd be really upset if anything over about point. 0.15. Really? Yeah, I wouldn't like that. Okay. Um, that's just where I would draw the line. I mean, that would explain what, like, two, two point something, kind of like R squared. Yeah, you know, you think, you think of the amount of variance, so yeah, that'd be about what? 0.15 would be 50, yeah, but that'd be 2.25% of variance. That's very low. It's pretty low. Like, that's certainly yeah. not the No, I probably wouldn't be. Um, when you're starting to get up around 0.2, 
you know, at point two, you've now got, I mean, I might even accept point two, but at that point, you're now explaining four, four 4% of the variances overlap. And we have this magical rule of five. <laughs> you know, so maybe there, right? So when you get to say point, Two, two, something like that would really would be really so bad. If, if there's multiple yeah, yeah, that would be. A, I've heard people use that. I'm a little more conservative about statistics. Uh, so what if the variable then? Say there's two variables, each explain 25. Yeah, and that's where you might say, well, gee, that's too damn bad. <laughs> and just use them both. Yeah, so it's that sort of way yeah, it really is. It's it's a weighting thing. Like it's it's cost benefit analysis all the time. You know. Typically, what you'll have here is if you'll get if you get a lot of multicollinearity, they also both overlap quite a bit, right? It just sort of follows logically. Um, Could you do a Venn diagram that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So if you had, so here's the variance in y. Okay, here's the variance in y. Now here's the variance in x1. We like that, right? We're explaining some variance. Right there, we're explaining probably about 10%. Uh, yeah, looks like it's about one-tenth of this area. Okay. Now let's make it so we're going to bring in x2 and we're going to have some multicollinearity. Now here we've got another, well, it's a little smaller. Let's say it's uh, 8%. But then there's variance that they share. This isn't unique variance that they're both explaining. This is overlapping variance. This part right here. Well, this here, both of these is multicollinear. But this is non-unique variance that they're sharing with y. But this here, the whole area, is multicollinear. How do you distinguish the part that's shared with y with the, the normal? You, you can, yeah. You can. You typically don't worry about that because, frankly, even that, um, <coughs> this overlap still screws up the beta weights of these. Right? Because the, the, the math assumes there's no overlap. So it's still a problem. I see where you're going, which is what if it's hardly, and this would be a, a nice judgment call, right? What if the amount of variance they share in x1, x2, and y share is like 0.0001, and this is like 0.1? At that point, I'd say, you know what? I don't care. Keep them both. You're probably still going to get a correlation. Oh, yeah, exactly. You're going to get a single correlation with x and y, but the shared variance with x1, x2, and y wouldn't be a problem. Yeah, and in that case, the judgment call I would make would be, yeah, I'll keep them both. Right, so you see what Mike's saying? That if this little part here, this little sort of almost triangle thing, if that was really small, they're explaining unique variance in y, but there's still a lot of overlap between x1 and x2. The lack of the, 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 their unique variance explanatory power, that's probably a better way to put that, of each x variable is excellent, but they still overlap or screws up the math. That's all behind this that we don't have to know. That's still a problem, but the fact that they're explaining the variance of y would please me. At which point, I would say, I'll keep them both. 
and then you judge them how I make that thing. Unless they overlap like point five with each other, it's stupid. And a lot of times when you're collecting these data, I was talking to my friend Todd's uh, uh, cigarette smoking data. You know, a lot of those variables overlap with each other like crazy. You know, uh, what were some of the like time to first cigarette and do you think you could quit today, yes or no, overlapped like crazy. But I think, in fact, those were both in, in the final model. Because everything there is going to overlap. Because, of course, when you pick the variables, you're picking all things that are about cigarette smoking. Well, of course they're all going to overlap. Right? So practically a bit of a problem. Right? Practically, you're always going to find variables. You're not going to say, okay, well, yeah, but we have to find one that's going to be unique. You don't know that, but you're pretty sure there's going to be a lot of overlap. Yeah, Mike? It's kind of subjective, but again, yep. how often would you say you find this? Uh, every single time you do a regression model. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so that's multicollinearity. Now, we assume a linear model, don't we? We assume straight lines. What if the model isn't linear? What if the, the lines aren't straight? There's a lot of things in nature, and think about it. What are we doing? We're doing life science, we're studying nature. There's a lot of things in nature that are exponentials, logarithms, all kinds of crazy things. Lots of them. In fact, straight lines are kind of rare, almost, when you think about it. What if you had, don't worry about this. What if you had this? Y equals lambda sub zero to the lambda sub one x times e. <laughs> See, that's scary looking. That's, that looks like, um, you ever watch that show Numbers where the guy solves math with, solves crime with math? A few years ago. I loved it. I loved that show. This looks like the kind of thing he'd write on. It was one he used multiple regression, which was pretty cool. Time series analysis. And the math, it's an HDTV now. You can actually pause it and look. The, the equations were right. It's kind of neat. <laughs> you look at that and you go, ah! All that's actually saying is that we have something that's an exponential. It's an exponential. Right? Because it's an exponent. But you might scream to yourself, ah! uh, If you took the logarithm of that, you get a nice linear equation. It's beautiful. So this is a case where you could take the log. And if you haven't done logarithms in a long time, don't worry about it. The point I'm making here, because I'm never going to show you something like that. I'm on the final exam. I'm going to show you that and say, what transformation would you do? Because that's not what this class is about. But one could simply, what the point I'm making is, some things are what's called intrinsically linear. We can take something that, that isn't linear, like an exponential, goes up like that, and we can make that into a straight line by taking the logarithm of both sides. Okay? And that's all I've done there. It's nothing fancy. If you know logarithms, that makes sense. If you don't, uh, it just... It's true. It's just true. As I've said before, you're Catholic, I'm Pope Dave the First. I always pick that one because I don't know any other sort of religions that have like a head guy. 
Okay, you're 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 Anglican, and I'm Archbishop of Canterbury, Dave. Go with that. I'm not picking out any religion. Intrinsically linear. That's pretty cool, actually. So a lot of times you look at something, oh, that's not a straight line. I can't do it. You say, well, actually, you just take the. You can transform it. So an intrinsically linear regression is, a, is something where you can actually use a mathematical transformation to turn it into a straight line. Not everything is intrinsically linear. So just because you see something that isn't a straight line, you can't just go, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll go ask a mathematician, or frankly, I'll go ask someone who's right now taking grade 11 math what this function looks like, and they'll say, oh, I know that's a an X, a Y, or a Z. It's this kind of, uh, you know, variable. This kind of function. Not everything is. Some things aren't. They're curves, and you can't fix them. Okay. So we, do, we can't have overlap, and we've got to have straight lines. There's also no mention at all of interaction. It's a completely additive model. There's no that I know there's a multiplication of a, of a coefficient, the b, but there's no like x1 times x2. Just remember, it was alpha times beta, x equals mu plus alpha plus beta plus alpha beta plus epsilon. It's not there. You might have noticed that. Um, you could always throw in x1 times x2. If you know there's an interaction between two variables, you can always throw in x1 times x2. That's making a very tenuous assumption, though. Because an interaction in the sense of, of analysis of variance just says that as there's stuff left over, right, that just due to being in the certain cell, we can't usually necessarily get a coefficient to multiply times that to make them all work. Right? Whereas here you have to. Like, you can't say x1 times x2 if x1 equals this, x1, x2 if x1 equals this, which is what, in essence, what you think about it, that's what we do with you know, plus 1, minus 1, minus 1, plus 1. We actually do that in analysis of variance. So it's, this can be done, but it's one of those things you do at your own risk. And by the way, would x1, x2 correlate with a variable called x1? Oh, yes, it's made up of them. <laughs> so you're actually purposely reducing the collinearity of your model. So you better have a damn good reason to put that in there. Would something like that would have been used in this working? No. 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 No, it's a straight up linear model with four variables. I can't remember the whole model, but I remember it's four variables. Chosen from 22. It's tough to know what the term should actually be, x1, x2. Um, the interaction term, you do it. This is where exploratory data analysis and a ton of experience actually really plays a role. And a lot of reading of old data, old papers. Right? You don't usually do this. I mention it because one can do it, but it's not something uh, I would ever suggest you do, to be honest with you. I would do it if someone said, I really know what I'm talking about, and yes, we always have this term and it works. It's like, okay, then that's fine. Okay, how are we going to select our predictors? 
The X's. Well, what about qualitative ones? You know, like sex or hair color. They're great if they're binary, zeros and ones, right? Because we can, if we had sex, we said, instead of saying male or female, we put in zero and one. And we say it's the number of Y chromosomes you have. None or one. That's easy. Don't give me X, Y, Y. Yes, I know those people exist. So we can do sex that way. Um, hair color, if we had like red and brown and black and blonde, could we do that? Well, no. Because remember, this is all numbers, right? So how are we going to assign numbers to red, brown, black, and blonde? We need one, two, three, and four? Well, we can't. Because if like, brown is two and red is one, that, that's saying that brown is two times hairier than red. And the hairiest of hair is blonde. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what that means. So remember, it's going to be zeros and ones, not ones and twos, for it to be meaningful. Uh, whoops. There is a way around things that are zeros that aren't, that have more than two uh, levels. Anything with two levels is fine, right? Because it's got zeros and ones. We just have none and one. How would you do it with hair color? Well, you do something called dummy coding. Um, Dummy coding is we have now four variables. Not one for hair color, but four variables. Do you have red hair? Zero or one. Do you have black hair? Zero or one. Do you have brown hair? Zero or one. Do you have blonde hair? Zero or one. If you've got blonde hair, your scores on those four variables are zero, 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 one. Did I say red hair first that time? Okay, let's pretend I did. If you have red hair, your scores are one, zero, zero, zero. So you can do it. It's called dummy coding. People don't typically do it. But you can. But now you're losing degrees of freedom every time you bring in another variable, right? So you've got to keep that in mind. One of the things you have to really watch out for are what are called Likert scales. Most of you guys know what Likert scales are, right? Um, one to seven. Strongly disagree to strongly agree. That kind of thing. There's a problem there. We work under this exceedingly tenuous assumption that those are ratio scales. Right? They have a zero point. We really don't. You can use them. And those tend to be scores on things like personality inventories. People use all the time in depression. Um, a really good, usually commercially available scale, or one that's published in a peer-reviewed journal, they've taken care of those things. The validity, reliability have been taken care of, and the, the way the scores work, that's all been taken care of, and then you can use them. If you've just got your own thing you made up, I wouldn't be putting in a regression. Because how do you know that the... That, 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 a score of 21 on your aggression scale you invented is actually twice as aggressive as a score of 10.5. You don't. Whereas really good scales that are developed by people that know what they're doing, they kind of work out that way. I mean, IQ is a great example. 
IQ pretty much is a ratio variable, even though it really isn't. <laughs> right? Think about it. Is someone with an IQ of 100 twice as smart as someone with an IQ of 50? Just intuitively, it seems to me, no. Way more than twice. Is the difference between 100, between 50 and 100 the same as the difference between 100 and 150? IQ of 50, you are never living by yourself. You're never... <coughs> Probably not going to get a job if you have some trouble anyway. You probably won't. You may never learn to, you know, go to the bathroom by yourself. 100 is the average person. 150 is a genius. But the genius and the average person can have a discussion. So is that difference to say? I don't know. I'm not really sure. I don't think so. What is the transformative business for? Uh, even then, uh, that's even then 150 and 150 the other way. Those, in fact, I chose that on purpose because 100 is the mean. Um, so the z scores would be the same, plus or minus. And I still think we have a problem. And I keep it one means all the time. Now, typically in the normal range, you know, plus or minus is about one and a half standard deviations or so. It's probably fine. Probably works. When you get to the extremes, not so good. Um, experimental variables are great. If you actually designed an experiment and had people in different levels, then you will get no multicollinearity because you've put people in groups. That's one of the few times you get no collinearity at all. Right? If you put subjects in groups, and those subjects can be anything. These could be bacteria cultures, those could be people. Those are good. So sometimes you'll do that. You'll very often in that, unless you only have two variables, or sorry, two levels, you'll be using that dummy coding approach. But then it's fine. That's about the only time you'll not get multicollinearity is when you assign the subjects, the experimental units, actually to the groups. This doesn't happen very often. So what we're going to do, of course, with all this information is build a model. So this has all been, everything I've been telling you about has been building towards the idea of Finally coming out with saying, you know, cigarettes per day equals yada, yada, yada. A linear combination of these four variables. That kind of question. So how do you choose which variables to use in your final model? Um, this is actually quite a bit different than ANOVA when you think about it. In ANOVA, we're, making, we're not we're saying is it significant or not. Here we're making a prediction with multiple regression. Which I have strangely capitalized, by the way. Not really a proper noun. So we're making a prediction with regression. We're not, in fact, just saying, is, this a, is it a significant effect? Different kind of question, different kind of answer. <coughs> Usually you start out with a lot of errors when you're using regression. Okay? You might start out with 20, 30. Well, one thing you could do, if you have a small number of variables, so you could actually do every possible regression model and look at all of them. So with three variables, there are actually seven models we can use. There's x1, x2, x3, x1, x2, x1, x3, x1, x2, x3, and x2, x3. Yeah, it's seven. Yeah. There's seven models. You could do all seven of them and look at them. Look at there are squares, right? Look for multicollinearity between all the variables. That's actually not hard to do. Seven models. 
for four variable, for all of possible four variable models, there are 15 models. So if we have four variables we're going to use, there are 15 four variable models. If we only had a total of four variables, by the way. Okay. Again, it's doable. I can do that. I'll have to hold a whole bunch of paper printed out around me, sitting on the floor and looking at them all. For 10, there's like a zillion of them. I don't even know what the number is. I can work it out. It's 1 plus 10 choose 2 plus 10 choose 3 plus 10 choose 4 plus 10 choose 5 plus 10 choose 6 plus 10 choose 7 plus 10 choose 8 plus 10 choose 9 plus 1. That's a big number. If you've done combinatorics, that's a big freaking number. Wow. You couldn't do it with 10. When I gave my students a U of T when I was a grad student, I taught a course just like this. Literally just like this. Um, the same notes, except they weren't on a computer back uh, And I gave them the, the, the cigarette smoking data set. And I said, go build the model. And some of them chose to print out every possible model. And there were literally quadrillions of them. And they had a printing uh, limit of 200 pages. Also, this was 1993, I actually managed my students uh, uh, crashed the entire computer network at the University of Toronto. Um, uh, and I got some phone calls and I said, I told them not to do that. I literally explicitly said, don't do this. And there's a thing you can choose in SAS called all reg, all possible regression. Well, I'll just do that anyway. Way to go. So you can't do it when you get past three or four. Five you can do. Five is, uh, I forget how many. But it's not a huge, unwieldy number. It's pretty big, though. So one of the things we're going to look at of individual variables is what are called residual plots. These can be exceedingly useful. I talked about this a couple of days ago. I talked about looking at the residuals. That's the prediction errors and the x variable. So what we could do is look at the residual plots of each x variable with y. We can also look at the residual plot of the whole model with y. This allows you to find anomalies, find things that are strange, that don't belong, outliers, right? Or just things that are perhaps encoded incorrectly. There was the one person in that cigarette smoking data set that had reported smoking 400 cigarettes a day. That's got to be a coding error. Nobody can, you can't, there's not enough time in the day, and he'd be dead already. Right? You can also find nonlinear relationships. If you see, if you've got along the uh, y-axis, you've got the size of the residual. Along the x-axis, you've got the x, right? And then you see that it goes like this. It's like, oh, that's not a straight line. That's a curve, right? Or what if the whole model does that? It's like, oh, I got a problem. So there's a few ways to do this. One of them is called to select the final model. One of them is called forward selection. This is an automatic method that the computer software will do. You start with the score with the x variable that has the highest r squared. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? You would get the one that has the most overlap with y. <coughs> and then add in the next variable that gives the biggest jump in r squared. That sounds exceedingly sensible. 
So they just keep going until the jump in R squared is not big enough. You have some cutoff point, and you say, okay, we stopped here, here's our model. So that's one automatic method that's used. You'll see this uh, option in every piece of software you'd ever use for any kind of statistical procedure uh, for regression. You would always see the forward selection approach. So that's one approach you can use, which is automatic, it's an algorithm, and it just builds you a model. How big is big enough? It actually works like this. It's a statistical F, F star. And it's mean squared regression for x1 given x2, given that it's, look, the type 1 over the type 2. It's type 2 over the type 1, actually. Right? Given it, uh, divided by mean squared regression for x1 over uh, times x2. I'm never going to ask you uh, to, to do, the, do a calculation on this. I'd like you to know what that is. And all it is is a way to determine how much extra variance. Is it a significant amount? It's an F test of extra variance that's being dealt with, that's being added to the model. Significant amount of unique variance, see? So that's, well, that's, that's what you look at F star, you do that. That's what it does, you don't do it. Uh, my advice to you would never, if you ever use this approach, is don't change the default. Leave the F star where it is. It's set up to be perfectly reasonable. And it's set up at, you know, 0.05 significance, basically. Okay? You can do, go, go the other way. Put every, see, this is the opposite of forward selection. You put every variable in the model, all 22 of them, and you start removing ones that take out small amounts of variance. Yeah? Um, the last one, did you say we determine how much extra variance is Exactly. Okay. So you start out with the vari all the variables in the model, and you delete variables that contribute the least amount of variance. Again, using that F star statistic. Always in a really small F star, throw it Why would you use this over forward selection? Forward selection seems to be there. Because they actually come up with different solutions? Usually? Presumably the cutoff is the same, right? Yeah? Shouldn't be made. No. <laughs> that's, the, that's the thing about this. The problem with these automatic methods is they don't agree usually. Or they often don't agree. So the smallest F star is taken out. And you keep going until you say, oh, significant F star, let's stop. Because remember, Michael is not caring about multicollinearity so much. It's not talking about, oh, do these, do these two variables together overlap with a third? So actually, that could cause a significant jump in F star or a significant drop in F star. Okay. It'd be better to account for the It'd be better to what? No, uh, neither of them are really. It, it, it's probably the case in that case, yes, if you had some situation that I just described, yeah. You could also do stepwise, <coughs> oh jeez, <coughs> stepwise regression. This puts the two together. This is the one people like. You go forward, so you start with the biggest F to enter, it's called. And you check, that, then, so you check F star for each variable. The one with the biggest goes in. And then you do the next one. And you throw in, so you put an X1, and you put an X2. <coughs> and now you find out what happens if I take X2 out. 
I've explained the significant amount of variance. What happens if I take it out? Does it, does it, does it drop the significant amount of variance? And you might say, how can that be? Well, there's all the, remember, at x1 and x2, it's, it's not going to make, it's not going to stop yet. At x3, though, it might be that it adds a significant amount of variance, but taking it out, because you've got so much overlap in the explained variance in y, that it might not hurt, it, it might not hurt so much to take it out. And that's what it stops. What you do is you set the criteria for adding and dropping. Uh, this is a case where you never want to play with the defaults. Because if you make them the same value, f to enter and f to drop, <coughs> it just gets caught in an infinite loop. And this is another thing my students did at U of T. I told them, please don't play with the defaults. And again, they crashed an entire computer system. There's no email. Oh, it's Broadbeck's students' fault. This was a mainframe kind of thing. So f star to enter is f to greater than or equal to f star to leave. If it's not, it's going to iterate through each variable in a series. It's exactly what it does. This is, now you can probably see that, yeah, and hopefully conceptually you can see what's happening. Bring one in, see if we drop any others, what happens? The neat thing is, it can happen like on step five, you drop the variable that you put in in step two. Because now we're explaining more variance, and there's a bit of overlap, and it kicks it out. So this sounds a lot better. The automatic methods look really at one thing. They look at f star. They don't look at residual plots. They don't really care about multicollinearity. It affects those f values. But they aren't really looking at that, specifically looking at that. So they're not looking at residual plots. They don't know about violation of linearity, which is really important. They don't, they don't look for outliers. They don't care. They don't worry about monolinearity things. They don't specifically look at multicollinearity. They don't look at residual plots in general. And I've said, you know, what if we had the residual plot I talked to the day, but going out like a cone? So as x gets bigger, the prediction area gets bigger. Well, they're not supposed to be dependent on each other. It doesn't look for that. That's something you can spot with your human eyes using your brain. Now, can somebody probably build a, uh, something that does this now with computer power? I'm sure somebody could. I have not seen it, though. Here's an approach. And this is whatever I've done whenever I've played with multiple with, with multi regression. I start with the correlation matrix. So I look at every single variable, all the x's and y, and see which ones correlate with each other. I pick a subset um, of those that correlate highly with y and don't correlate with each other very much. And it, again, as I was mentioning to Michael before, that's a subjective call. And if it's, say, all four or under, I just do all of them. I do all of them. And I look at all the residual plots for every single variable within one variable model, a two variable model, three. It's a little time consuming, but it works. I then also try all three automatic methods, forward selection, backward selection, and stepwise regression. I do all three. It used to be, by the way, it's not like this anymore. You do that and you'd walk away because it would take the computer an hour. I remember doing mathematical modeling 
on an Apple IIe, and we used to like, put a sign on it, do not unplug computer, do not turn off, because it would take a week to run the calculations. Then I got a new computer and it ran it in like 10 seconds. That's great. We were scrounging old equipment. The whole time I'm checking for outliers uh, on residual plots. And I'm checking the residual plots in general. Then I do it again. Um, if I do it two times in a row and I agree with myself, I figure I probably did it, uh, you know, I didn't miss anything. This is what I've done when I've played with this kind of stuff. I've never published anything with regression. I've helped people do regression. Bit of a different thing. I've done it for myself for uh, my own purposes for stuff, which I'm not going to go into. One other thing you can look